Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning begins a new series in 1 Corinthians. So having concluded our series through Genesis, we now come to a New Testament scripture. And I intend to preach through 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, whether I'll do a break in between with something else or not, if, uh, hasn't been decided. Uh, but we do begin uh, with an introductory sermon this morning from 1 Corinthians. And so we read now 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is God's holy word. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to the Apostle Paul, so we know that it is without error as it was given to the Apostle. And so let us attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. Paul, called to be an Apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing. Well, as I mentioned, as we begin this new Series, it's appropriate that I would give a bit of an introduction to the letter this morning, as we will be studying it for many weeks to come, Lord willing. Corinth was a city located about 45 miles to the west, slightly southwest of Athens. So, those of us who have studied Western civilization, if you've learned a little bit about ancient history uh, in the school, uh, you'll probably be more familiar with where Athens was and is uh, than Corinth. So Corinth is just about 45 miles away. It's in the region of Greece known as Achaia or Achaia. Uh, there is evidence of settlement at that place. Uh, it goes so far back that if using a biblical timeline, we would expect that the place was occupied not many generations after the Tower of Babel. Its location was on the what was simply called the Isthmus, or to our maps now, the Isthmus of Corinth, because Corinth was there. It's that narrow strip of land that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the south, to the rest of Greece, to the north. And that gave it an important strategic position. It was an important strategic site. So that would be probably why it would have been settled very early, and was occupied uh, for most of history, most of known history. To its east, about seven miles, was the Gulf of Aegina, also known as the Saronic Gulf, uh, an inlet of the Aegean Sea. And a few miles to the west is an inlet from the Adriatic Sea, both of which are extensions of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, known as the Gulf of Corinth. And so just a few miles either side of the city was uh, a major uh, sea. And the road from one gulf to the other 
uh, carried cargo across that isthmus. It was easier, particularly in the winter time when there were more storms at sea, for people to to uh, hug the coasts or to to come in. In this case to the Isthmus of Corinth and carry goods across and then take it across the short trip across the Adriatic to Italy, for example. There are even the ruts from cart after cart after cartload of goods that, are still, that can still be seen in the ground, in the rocks uh, in that territory. And there's some evidence that perhaps they even had some purposefully carved ruts so that uh, standardized uh, carts could all be pulled across, even trains of them uh, pulled by oxen and that sort of thing. Even small ships uh, would be placed in wheeled cradles and pulled across the few miles of the isthmus from one sea to the other greatly shortening the trip from the Aegean Sea to Italy and the western Mediterranean. So uh, Corinth controlled sea trade from east to west and land trade from north to south in Greece. And so it was a very important and wealthy place to be. By 600 BC, Corinth was one of the wealthiest and most powerful cities in all of ancient Greece. Unlike other Greek city-states, it managed to keep much of its prestige and prosperity until the Roman period. It sided with Sparta against the city of Athens and their allies in the Peloponnesian War, uh, which lasted from about 431 B.C. to 404 B.C., and so it came out on the winning side. Uh, We tend, because of their ancient democracy, to root for Athens when we read about them in ancient history, and sadly, they didn't always win. And uh, that really saw the great decline of Athens as any kind of influential power, except in terms of education uh, later than that. After Greece came under the rule of Philip II of Macedon, uh, he made Corinth the headquarters of his Hellenic League. Hellenic is is just from the Greek word for Greeks. Uh, So this is the Greek League. Uh, It also came to be known as the League of Corinth because this was the the headquarters of that league. Uh, He died shortly after establishing it. His son Alexander the Great uh, governed that Hellenic League thereafter. The same year that the Romans conquered Greece, 146 B.C., An uprising against them occurred in Corinth shortly after their conquest. And so that same year, again, 146 B.C., the Romans destroyed the city. They destroyed its walls. They left it unoccupied until Julius Caesar rebuilt the city in 44 B.C. So a little over 100 years the site was left unoccupied for the first time in many centuries. And when Julius Caesar rebuilt it, he made it a Roman colony. Uh, This is a a phenomenon we see in Roman history because uh, according to Roman law, a man who served out his full term as a soldier in the Roman armed forces, uh, if he wasn't already a citizen, became one and was to be given a parcel of land to farm and to make a living from. And after many generations, they ran out of parcels of land to give away in Italy. And so they had to start giving them away in their conquered territories. And they would build, or they would establish 
places as Roman colonies, a place where retired soldiers could settle, and that would attract other Roman citizens then as well. So it became the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, and there were really four major attractions that would draw people to Corinth. One was the preferred status that it had as a Roman colony. Being a Roman colony meant that it had certain privileges that other cities didn't get. That, of course, drew the retired soldiers and other citizens of Rome, but even other people who weren't citizens, because they would sort of get the the trickle-down effect of all of the the benefits of being a city that was full of Roman citizens. The second attraction was it controlled, again, those prosperous trade routes by land and sea. The city, therefore, became associated with business and, in many cases, with greed in many people's eyes, though it certainly uh, did attract legitimate business because it was just a good place to do business on trade routes. We know that uh, Paul's friends, Priscilla and Aquila, were actually from Rome, and they were expelled from the city because Aquila was Jewish and uh, Claudius expelled the Jews from the city probably because of some controversy going on among the uh, Jewish community due to the uh, uh, hostility against the gospel. And so uh, when expelled from the city, Priscilla and Aquila settled in Corinth for a time because that was a good place to do trade. That's pretty likely to be the reason they would have come there. A third thing that drew people there frequently was the Isthmian Games. Uh, We have heard of the Olympics, of the Olympic Games. Uh, There was a rival to the Olympic Games. That was the Isthmian Games that took place there at Corinth on the Isthmus. It's a hard word to say over and over again. Uh, But uh, I believe it was every three years that the Games took place there in uh, in Corinth, either every two or three years. The fourth thing that attracted people was the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess that the Romans called Venus, the goddess of love, but I'll say that in air quotes, love, uh, because we should point out that Aphrodite was not associated with the kind of self-sacrificial love, agape, that we read about in the New Testament, but uh, she was associated with eros, which uh, it would be polite to call it romantic love, but... Uh, erotic love. The The temple housed over 1,000 priestesses, and I'll say that in quotes as well, because these priestesses were actually prostitutes. Corinth became so associated with corrupt morals that to say that someone was Corinthianized was a way of saying that he or she practiced frequent immorality. To be called a Corinthian woman was essentially a nice way of saying you were a prostitute. Kind of like saying someone's a lady of the evening. There were even contexts where to be called a Corinthian man meant you were somebody who liked to visit those Corinthian women. Out of that cultural environment, you and I might look at it, we would look at it kind of like maybe Las Vegas is viewed today. It might be something similar to that. Sin City, right? Uh, But out of that cultural environment, the Lord saw fit to claim many people for his kingdom. I'm glad to to know that we, our denomination, has a thriving congregation in what would be the Corinth of our day in Las Vegas. It was out of that 
cultural context, that environment, the Lord claimed many people for his kingdom, proving, as Paul writes in Romans 9.16, it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. If we were thinking in purely worldly terms, you might think, well, that's the last place where a church would thrive. And yet, it did. That doesn't mean it didn't have its problems, as we will see in this letter. There was a great deal of, there were a great deal of challenges that came about from being in such an environment. And the church always has the temptation of being influenced by a culture like that around it. But in Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said to Paul of the city of Corinth, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. He already claimed for himself many people in that city, so he told Paul, go there, preach the gospel to them, so that they will, as we'll see uh, as this letter unfolds, so that they will then respond in faith to that gospel. As Luke records in Acts 18, Paul arrived in Corinth while on his second missionary journey. So uh, we put this probably around AD 50 or 51. And Luke tells us that Paul began preaching Christ, as he often did, if there was a synagogue in the city, he would go to that synagogue. And so he began preaching Christ in the synagogue. There was one in the city of Corinth. And he quickly gained converts, including the ruler of the synagogue. So that would be sort of akin to the the pastor of the church. And so... Uh, Right away, the ruler of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, was converted to Christ. Many Corinthian Gentiles became believers as well, along with a core group of Jewish believers. It seems the disgruntled Jews, who did not believe on Jesus Christ, then replaced Crispus as ruler of the synagogue right away with a man named Sosthenes. By the time Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half, Uh, Gallio was the man who was proconsul, the governor of Achaia, the region that Corinth was the capital of. His full name, we can find in historical documents, is Lucius Junius Gallio Anianus. Inscriptions mentioning him have been found in the city ruins, so we see a lot of corroboration, if you will, of the scripture uh, as archaeology is done in that place. Uh, he was in Corinth from AD 51 to 53, so we know that Paul was uh, still there at least as late as 51, because that would be the earliest that Gallio could interact with Paul, and we read in Acts that Gallio did interact with Paul. The famous lawyer and philosopher, if you hadn't heard of Gallio from outside of Scripture, you may have heard of this man, Seneca. Seneca wrote of how kind and agreeable Gallio was. And he might have been a little bit biased because, actually, to be fair, Gallio was Seneca's older brother. So, so they knew each other, and they got along pretty well, it seems, because Seneca talked about how great Gallio was. So we have writings that have survived to this day that tell us a little bit more about this man than many other people who might have been in his position. In Acts 18, we read that the non-believing Jews those who rejected the gospel, brought Paul before Gallio with a lawsuit. Acts 18.13 tells us they accused him this. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now what we might surmise was going on there, if we know the historical circumstance, we know that uh, 
ordinarily people were required. They could go ahead and uh, conquered peoples could go ahead and keep worshiping their own gods. But they also had to worship the gods of Rome. And the only people who really had an exemption for this were the Jews. And so if the Jews could convince the Roman authorities that Christians were not really Jews, they were not really within the milieu of Judaism, they were something other, they were outside, then that would make Christianity illegal. And so that's probably what they were trying to do here. But Gallio saw this purely as an internal Jewish religious matter. You're not arguing about whether uh, you are Jews or not, but whether it's appropriate for these Gentiles to become Jews or not, and can they become Jews as being uh, worshiping this same Christ who many of you Jews believe is the fulfillment of Judaism. So Gallio sees this purely as a theological argument within Judaism, and so he dismisses the case. He did nothing then to intervene when a Gentile mob thought that this was a waste of the court's time and beat the new ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, for wasting their time in public. We might reasonably surmise that Paul showed love and mercy to Sosthenes, for when we next learn of him, he too is a Christian. Sometime after that, Paul left for Ephesus, uh, taking his friends Priscilla and Aquila with him. Aquila was a Jewish man. His wife Priscilla was a Roman we can tell by her name. Uh, They might have been Christians already by the time Paul met them. They certainly were shortly after he met them, by the time he left Corinth. And they were a very mature Christian couple. By mature, I'm not talking about how old they were. I don't know how old they were. Uh, But they were spiritually mature. They were instrumental in Paul's ministry in Corinth. He stayed in their home while he was there on that first visit. A few years after he left, while on his third missionary journey, he would write this letter from Ephesus around AD 55. From chapter 5, verse 9, we can tell that he had already written a letter to the brethren at Corinth prior to writing this letter, uh, but the Lord did not see fit to preserve that one for us, so we don't have it in Scripture. Of course, As a letter from an apostle, it would have had authority. It just wasn't God's will that it be a permanent part of the Bible. And maybe he didn't uh, superintend its writing in the way that he would write one that he would, uh, or the way that he would superintend the writing of an apostolic letter that would be preserved as Scripture. So 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's second letter to this church. From 2 Corinthians 2 4, we understand there was a third letter uh, that did not get preserved in Scripture, making 2 Corinthians actually the fourth letter of Paul to the church, so that gets a little confusing. So we might ask, well, why would Paul need to write four letters to one church? Two of them are inspired canonical letters. They're in the Bible. Why write those to one church when when most churches get one or none? You know, we've got First and Second Thessalonians, but otherwise everything's a a separate letter to a separate church that we have in the in the scriptures and uh, in the New Testament we don't have very many churches that have letters from apostles preserved. So why did this church get four letters and two of them inspired scripture? Well, the church at Corinth clearly had some major problems. 
From 1 Corinthians, we see that the congregation was divided over petty, unbiblical things. It was also being influenced by the immoral culture around it. So uh, the immorality of the culture of Corinth didn't keep God from planting a church there, but it nevertheless did uh, present challenges to the church. There were people that were confused about how to engage that culture, uh, dealing with sexuality, with church discipline, with marriage, uh, with questions of worship, and even the reality of resurrection. There they are in a, a, a cultural environment that, where Greek philosophy was upheld as the greatest pinnacle of human learning. And so things like resurrection were deemed ridiculous. So Paul writes this letter to correct those kinds of problems. He first establishes his authority to write such a letter. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. God made Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ. Christ himself chose Paul for this office and gave him this authority. So Paul's establishing that right away. An apostle literally is a sent one. Now that's a messenger. There are different kinds of messengers. In fact, we're going to learn in a few weeks. Um, a few weeks' time, actually, we'll have the, the intervention of the time when we have the Lord's Supper and things. But in a while, down the road, uh, we will be learning about, uh, about a type of messenger known as a herald. And that's how Paul talks about the message of the gospel. That is a message of a herald. That the herald just shows up in the town square and proclaims, this is what the king says. And he doesn't do anything to try to persuade people to believe. He just, he just tells them this is what the king says. And that's how we're to treat the gospel. We don't mess with it. We don't change the message. We don't water it down. But an apostle is a different kind of messenger. It's one with the authority of the one who sent the message. And so he can actually give the message and implement the things that need to be done to obey the message. We also read of Sosthenes here in this introduction. He's next mentioned. It's likely that he is the secretary who wrote down the letter as Paul dictated or who copied it out for him. The the latter part of verse 1, and Sosthenes our brother. And this very likely is the man who was the former ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. So by this time, two rulers of the synagogue at Corinth are now Christians. Now a Christian, he's laboring with Paul in Ephesus, it appears, from where Paul wrote this letter. It would be meaningful that his name would be in the opening greeting of the epistle. Paul has lots of other companions with him. But in the opening greeting, he sometimes uh, puts the name of someone who was beloved by that congregation. And so this would make sense if this was the man who used to be the ruler of the synagogue, who even was involved in trying to get Paul prosecuted before the Romans, and then now he is a brother in Christ. What a statement that makes. Paul addresses the letter to the church of God, which is at Corinth, To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Notice several things Paul emphasizes here. First, he emphasizes the church of God, which is at Corinth. No true church is the church of a mere man or a mere movement. 
And that's going to be really important as we see what the problems are in this letter. The first problem Paul is going to deal with is the problem of factionalization. The, congre- the congregation here has been divided into parties naming themselves after their favorite teachers. There's a faction of Paul. There's a faction of Apollos, who's a teacher who comes to that church after Paul. There's a faction of Cephas, that's Peter, and another that says they are of Christ, which is technically correct, but the way that Paul talks about them, we don't get the notion that he's commending that either. And so it seems that what he's saying is that these people are arrogantly creating their own faction, saying, well, we're above it all. I am of Christ. Well, the church should be above all of that factionalization. And indeed belongs to Christ, but the church belongs to none of these factions, even if one of them takes the name of Christ on themselves. The church belongs to God. Secondly, we see that those who are sanctified are spoken of here. Literally, Paul says, those having been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The church is made up of forgiven sinners who by God's grace are set apart from the world. That's, uh, that's what sanctified means. It literally means being made holy. They are to be in the world, but not of it. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be righteous in thought, in word, and in deed. Too many of the Corinthian brothers and sisters are living as though they are of the world. That's another problem we're going to find in this letter. They're influenced by the culture rather than being an example of holiness to it. A third thing he mentions is they are called to be saints. So again, they're called to be holy ones, apart from the world. God calls his people to holiness. And of course, the major way that we show that we're apart from the world is in righteousness. In Leviticus 11.44, God says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The fourth thing we note is that it's with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Here's a church that is factionalized, a congregation that has sort of cliques in it, where uh, it's kind of like some uh, high school in a movie, right? Where there's they're the they're the skater kids over here, they're the cool kids over here, and there's uh, there's the rocker kids over here, and the and the sporty kids over here, and they never really mix. That seems to be what's something like that is going on in this church. And Paul's emphasizing that a church is to be unified. All, he's talking about here the universal church as well. You're, you're unified with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. There's, a, there's this uh, emphasis of unity there in Christ. The church is to be unified under the common lordship of Jesus Christ. In John 17, 11, Jesus prays to the Father, keep through your name those you have given me that they may be one as we are one. Sinful and unnecessary factions mar that unity. And no one can say, it's just me and Jesus, I don't need the church. He is the Lord of all who call on him in faith. So Paul prays for grace and peace for the Corinthian brethren. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice again, our Father, not just some of our Father, all of our Father. All of us who are in Christ have God as a Father. Only God can overcome these sins which are breaking the church in Corinth, which are damaging its witness. Only God can bring unity where there has been 
division. And so Paul prays for God's grace and peace to be upon them. Only God can bring righteousness where there has been wickedness. The church is God's church. We take away these lessons from this brief introduction to 1 Corinthians. The church is God's church. Christians are sanctified, they are set apart by God from the fallen world and from wicked cultures around us. And we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to be righteous. Christians are called, therefore, to act in holiness. Be holy, for God your Savior is holy. And Christians are called to lay aside sinful and petty divisions and be unified in Christ. Be one with your Christian brethren. Let's pray. Lord of all, we acknowledge that the church and every congregation, which is a true branch of your true church, is yours. It is not ours. It does not belong to to us or to any one of us. But it is your church that you have set us apart from the fallen world by your grace. So we ask that you would empower us to live holy lives, to lay aside any petty and sinful divisions, that we might outwardly live out the true spiritual unity we have in Christ, who alone is King and Head of the Church, and in whose name we pray. Amen.